Good morning, Braveful listeners. So thank you for being here today. Today's podcast is with Dr. Jan Canty. She's a PhD psychologist, and she has a wonderful podcast called The Domino Effect of Murder, as well as she has written a book called A Life Divided. And I have to tell you that I learned about the secret world of homicide. Um, Who would have thought that would ever come out of my mouth, to be honest? The, The fact that there is you know, we see the salacious side of it. We see the the TV, the everything. But what happens when it hits you personally? How does one deal with it? How does one reach out a hand to help someone who has been a victim of a homicide? So I'm going to read part of, of her book real quick, and, and it will let you know what this great podcast is about because it was extremely eye-opening for me. I think I said, wow, about 20 times. And it made me realize that you don't know um, what's happening on the other side of, of those eyes that are staring at you. So grace and compassion is so inc- incredibly important. So here we go. Betrayal can be discovered in a number of ways. In this case, Dr. Canty learned of it as she sat across from Inspector Gil Hill, head of the homicide division in Detroit, and learned her missing spouse had led a double life for 18 months and was found dismembered. What you have before you is a psychologist's case study and memoir of the darkest days of her life and how she reclaimed her momentum. When it comes to marriage, there are all things known, unknown, and things known too late. A Life Divided will speak for the invisible families in the shadows of gruesome homicides who know too well that the headlines, sound bites, and trials are just the beginning of the story. So I invite you to listen in to my conversation with Jan Canty, and I hope it inspires you to be kind, be giving um, of yourself to someone that may or may not be in need. It will be appreciated. Have the best day ever. Thank you. Hello. Welcome to Braveful, a podcast with and for achieving women. I'm your host, Amy Zeigert. I'm so excited to share with you stories of women who are brave and gutsy. This show is a weekly view into the hearts and minds of what has enabled these fabulous ladies to take a leap and go forward with bold ideas. So join me in an opportunity to listen, learn, and lean in, Braveful style. So again, thank you, Jan Canty, for being here. Um, And for people who are joining, um, I have Jan Canty, who's a PhD and has achieved grateful status just based upon the life that she has lived. And she has written a book called A Life Divided. We're coming up on a one-year anniversary. Um, an audiobook was just released a couple weeks ago. And um, her podcast has been out a year. But I'm going to let you, Jan, um, tell everybody what have you done to achieve this grateful status in, in my book? I'm Because I can't do it justice. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. Well, I guess the first thing is surviving. I was a preemie and I was not expected to live. Wow. I'm a twin and my my twin was much bigger than me, Uh, but obviously I did. And uh, then they thought I'd be mentally retarded and then that didn't happen. And but anyway, flash forward to the the 60s. Um, In the 60s, I was so ready to get out of high school, could not stand high school, hated education And I really wanted to go to college, but I had no role models. I had nobody encouraging me to go, including my parents. Uh, Ultimately, I uh, married a man who was 18 years my senior, 
He okay. was very encouraging of me going to get my AA and then my BA and then my MA. We were married 11 years, but things kind of changed when I wanted to go for a PhD. He was like, well, maybe a break is in order. And, and I'm telling him, look, I'm in the rhythm right now and it, tuition doesn't get cheaper. Let's just press on. He was a psychologist. He kind of was reluctant, but kind of went along with it. But I could tell he, his heart was not in it. And it only got intensified when I told him I wanted to go for a two-year postdoctoral fellowship. And he said, that's wasted time. And you're not earning money, you know, while you're in a postdoc and it costs you money to be in a postdoc. And I said, I know, but it's only two more years. What's two more years? Right. <laughs> and uh, at that time, when I was in my postdoc, I got very sick. I was always prone to that, maybe from being a preemie. I don't know. But I got mono and it would not go away. And my doctor said, look, you've got to get either hospitalized or go someplace and rest because you're not getting better. You're getting worse. So I flew to my parents' house to stay with them. They live in Phoenix. I'm thinking, you know, Phoenix in November, that's really rough, isn't it? <laughs> so... I, I asked if I could come out there and just sleep. And they said, of course, of course. So I did. I was there for three weeks and I bounced back and came home and everything seemed fine. But what I did not know until 18 months or so later was that while I that when I departed to go to Phoenix, my husband departed our house and our promises to one another and went down to the red light district in Detroit and purchased the services of a prostitute, then over the next 18 months, subsidized her and her pimp's lifestyle financially to the tune of, in today's dollars, $350,000. I did not know that in that 18 months, he had spent everything we had. He had even uh, gotten loans from his mother and had given quite a bit of her money away. He had I had assembled a, I got the feeling something wasn't right. I, I just felt, now I don't mean in terms of him. I mean, in terms of him and my safety, we were getting hang up calls. There was a guy that drove by the house one time and asked for my husband and he had a really crappy car and he looked too old to be driving a junker like that. And, and I'm thinking, why does he want to talk to my husband? And he wouldn't leave his name or number. And there was just several things that were like weird feeling. So I took an inventory of the house and I cataloged everything we owned and put an estimated value on it in case we were robbed. And I put it in an album. I did not know until much later he had given that album to these same people down in the cast quarter. So they had the layout of our house and the contents of our house and the value of everything in our house. And then I was sitting, we, we weren't arguing as much as we were just, I don't know how to describe it. He was very preoccupied. I was worried about his health because he was 18 years older, right? So I'm thinking maybe he's not well. And I encouraged, and he smoked heavily and I encouraged him to go to the doctors and he kept putting it off. And and he was just sullen, just quiet and uh, withdrawn and spent a lot of time staring at the TV. And that wasn't like him in the beginning of our relationship. But at any rate, one evening in July of 1985, I was watching a three hour special live aid on television. So I lost track of time and it was a very stormy night. I remember that clearly. A lot of the hail started in the afternoon, as a matter of fact, with wind gusts up to 60 miles an hour. There was uh, branches down and I called him at work and I said, why don't you leave early? Your patients don't need to be out in this and neither do you. Oh, I'll be fine. I'll be fine, which is how he often was, just kind of oblivious to danger. 
I said, fine, okay, uh, I'll have dinner ready at seven. Well, I, I lost track of time because I was watching this TV special and I suddenly looked up and it was like eight, three, nine o'clock, something like that. And I'm like, well, that's weird because he was very punctual. And this is before cell phones, before the internet. So the only way I could reach him was to call his answering service who had no idea where he was. Well, by the time midnight rolled around, I was really frantic. And I even called my neighbor next door, Jim, uh, to ask me if he would drive me down to the Fisher Building, which is in the inner city. It was still a raging storm outside to ask him if he could accompany me just to go into the office building late at night because it wasn't in a great area of town. It was on the northern edge of the Cass Corridor. And the Cass Corridor is a three-mile square area of just drugs and alcohol, prostitution, arms sales, you name it, right on the edge of Wayne State University, which is where I got my undergraduate degree. So he did. He took me down to his office and everything was in place. There was no sign of him except that he had signed out. Because Everybody after 6 p.m. had to sign out of the building. He had signed out at 635. And I'll, well, OK, so we went home and the next morning I went back to the Fisher building. And there was a police substation there to report him missing, but they wouldn't take the report because it had not been 24 hours. So I waited and waited and called my parents and they said they would they would get a dog sitter and try to come out to see me ASAP. And they did. They arrived about three days later. I called his mother, my mother-in-law, told her the news. I don't know where he is. He's been gone for two days. It's not like him. She had contacts in the Detroit Police Department, thank God, because they got on it immediately. And he just vanished. So a week later, I got called down to, I got a call from Detective Marlis Landeros, who turned out to be a brave full woman. <laughs> she was an amazing human being. Uh, she was the first woman of color in a position of authority in the Detroit Police Department. She was a homicide detective and, and looked younger than she was, but just an angel in disguise. I mean, she was very professional. I'm not saying she held my hand or anything like that, but I felt safe with her. I felt she knew the ropes and I was in good hands. I had no doubt about it. And she came and she said or called and said, you know, you're needed down here. So we went down there and we met Inspector Gil Hill, who, as an aside, was in the movie with Eddie Murphy of Beverly Hills Cop One. He played Detective Todd. Well, this was shortly after his role in the movies and everybody seemed to know him in Detroit. And it was weird meeting him face to face after seeing him in movies. But that's an aside. So anyway, he sat me down and he wanted to talk with me alone. But I just had a feeling there was this tsunami coming at me. And I asked if my parents could come in because, I mean, it said homicide division on the outside of the door. Right. There's a clue, right? Yeah. So he said, yeah, so bring your parents in. So we, the three of us sat there and he basically he was very terse. He was very short on words. He just said, we have every reason to believe your husband's been murdered, but we don't have his body yet. And we need that for an arrest for a search warrant. Because again, this is back before DNA, what it is today. Right. right. And he said, we'll be in touch. So it was, I was only there about five minutes. It was just in and out. So we went home and oh, and he also told me at that same meeting, he said that he's been seen in on Casper Street in the Cass Corridor in the company of John Carl Fry and Don Marie Spence, two names I didn't even recognize. And he goes there by the name Dr. Miller. And I'm like, well, that's not his name. It's Dr. Canty. I know. Well, he has a, another identity down there in the cast quarter. He's posing as physician, Dr. Miller. So I come home and I'm trying to make sense of this, which was craziness, you know. And uh, 
basically, you know, we were just at loose ends for the next week. We, the press descended, they were just bloodthirsty. They never left us alone. So when my parents came, my dad took charge of the front door and the phone. My dad also took charge of watching the news briefs on television. I didn't want to see them. And he kind of filtered them. He would tell me kind of every night what the, if there was any news, what it was, but he saved me some of the details that I didn't need at that point in time. How did the and, press find out about it? Oh, well, they knew from the moment. I mean, because the next week when I had, when they had found his body, and this is how bloodthirsty they were. Detective Landero said, I, I need, I'm going to come by for you. We need you at the morgue. So she drove me down to the Wayne County Morgue, which was an old building. It was built in the 20s and it looked like a Egyptian mausoleum, kind of retro looking building, really old. And uh, she said, uh, said, we don't have all of his body parts. He was dismembered and we do have his head. We need you to identify his head. It was buried in a bog in northern Michigan near Petoskey on the property owned by the University of Michigan Biologic Station. And the only reason we found out is because his accomplice by the name of McMaster came forward and confessed to intern state's evidence for protection. You know, he's not going to be tried. Otherwise, I don't think they would have ever found it because the place that they buried his identifiable body parts was reserved for roadkill because the University of Michigan studied ecosystems and mosquitoes. And so it, it reeked of death and it was full of vermin, you know, so it was a perfect cover for something like that. But they had flown his body parts overnight back down to the Wayne County morgue. And I was invited in the next morning to identify his head, which was difficult because I couldn't get the words out. Detective Landero said, all you have to do is say yes or no. You can't nod. We need it on the. And I don't know if there I don't remember if there was other people in the room with us or if it was just her. I don't remember that part. I was extremely tired by this time. I hadn't slept much in a week. So I, they had to start the whole process over again. And the second time I was able to say the word yes, but she detached me from the spot. We started going out the front door and the, the this was on a Sunday at seven in the morning and the press was already there. They were like three people deep on every step clamoring. And she turned me around and made me go out a back door and and lay down in the back of her squad car. And we went back home that way. And the press was waiting for us when we got home in our driveway. I mean, it was just relentless. So that was in July. And then the next step was a hearing. I was subpoenaed to go to the preliminary exam, which took place in late July, which is pretty record time. Yeah. And that was the first time I'd seen the defendants in person. And I would describe John Carl Fry as kind of like a little disheveled version of Mr. Clean on the disinfectant bottle, kind of a shaved head and tattoos and big guy, barrel chested uh, with a beard. And she, Dawn Spence, the prostitute, was emaciated, kind of greenish gray looking skin and looked absolutely bored with the whole thing. And they, I was the first witness they called. The media was filling up the jury box at this point in time. They didn't have a jury because this is the prelim exam. So the uh, what do you call it? The um, court artist was there sketching me. And this was in Judge Sapala's courtroom. And there was two weapons checks. One was at the entrance to the building, which was typical for every case in the uh, that court building. And the second one was right outside his courtroom, which he ordered because he knew that Fry had information on other homicides. And he was worried other people would kill him on the witness stand 
before he could testify to those other murders. And so they had a second weapons check. And it was extremely busy, very crowded, very small room. I didn't expect it to be that small, but it was. And my parents were there, but they would not let them sit near me. They had to sit way in the back. And I went ahead with Detective Landeros. And the defense attorney tried to get my testimony uh, stipulate to it to get me out of the courtroom because he did not want the jury, anybody to see me, the judge in particular. But the defense uh, lost on that motion and I was seated. I was the first witness. So it was pretty brief. The DA just asked me a few questions. He just asked me how long we were married. He asked me if I had been called down to the ME building. And I said, yes. And he asked me what I did there. And I told him that I identified my husband and he asked him what that was like. And I told him, and then he asked me this stupidest question. He said, did you give anybody permission to dissect your husband? And I said, "Uh, no. Okay. That's all the questions I have. So I left. Oh, and one other thing, I was so angry by this point. I mean, in the beginning, I was really frightened the first month, but now I'm really angry because I I now know they've gotten all our money, the access to our house. They've killed my husband. After they even knew I had existed, they still pursued because he had lied and said he was a widow, widower. But they found out the truth and they still pursued it. So I was really upset. And I remember as I was exiting the witness stand going out the door, I, I behaved as if while going by the defense table, I was pushed into the table by the crowd but I really wasn't. I just stumbled and I slapped my hand on the defense table as if to say, F you, I've got you now. You're in court. I was so mad. So anyway, they scheduled, of course, they were bound over for trial and the trial was scheduled for December, which is record time. But I decided not to go. I said, one, I don't want to face the press. And two, more importantly, nothing is going to change what goes on in my life. I'm still going to live in a huge house I don't want and cannot afford, especially now because I have no income. He's given all our money away and, we, and we're behind in house payments. So I was worried about being homeless. That wasn't going to change by anything in court. I was still going to be a widow. I was still going to be followed by the press. And so I thought I'm not going to give them any more of my time. And that was a pivotal moment because at that, when I knew the trial was coming up, I decided then and there, and I stuck to it. I will not be more collateral damage. I won't. I'm going to do everything I can in my power to extricate myself. They're not going to get one iota more of me than they already have. So I went out to Arizona again and spent Christmas with my parents. I went to a convention there for psychologists and it snowed, which was weird. (laughs) But anyway, I was there for two weeks and came back and I had difficulty selling the house because it was big. And secondly, because in Michigan, and this law is still on the books, if there's a serious crime connected with the owner of the house, you have to disclose it to potential buyers in case they're suspicious, even if it didn't take place on the premise. Okay. And if they back out and they can back out, but if you fail to do so, they can rescind the offer at any time in the future. So that devalued the house. So I had to sell it for half of what it was worth. And then I get the word from my physician. My uh, mentor said, you've really got to get to see your doctor because you look terrible. You've lost weight. You're not sleeping. Your hair's thinning. You've really got to see a doctor. So I went in to see my physician who I'd known since I was five. So he could could be like a dad to me. And that's the kind of relationship we had. And he said, you know, I hate to bring this up, but you really need to be tested for AIDS. And he said, because the AIDS epidemic has been in full swing. 
He was with a prostitute who abused IV drugs. And the Elisa, the ELISA test was just approved two weeks ago. So you need to get it. And that was humiliating. And he said, you know, it's not perfect. There could be false positive. There could be false negatives. So you need to have a test repeated every year for seven years to know you're in the clear. And I'm thinking, what more can they take from me? And as, as I'm sitting there thinking about this, I'm thinking, and they say prostitution is a victimless crime. If that's the case, why am I sitting here? Why am I getting this test? So I went through that and he said, okay, initial results were okay, but you know, come back in a year and a year and a year after that. So roll around the next anniversary of Al's death and the media was still on me and I was tired of it. I had I had moved. I finally sold my house. I moved nearby to a really a place I just loved. I, I thought of it as my safe house. It was like an old brownstone, yeah. uh, three story, narrow and tall. And uh, but the press wouldn't leave me alone. And so I decided I had what to. What were they trying to get from you? I, I mean, it was uh, a, one of the reporters by the name of Lowell Caulfield wanted to write a book. Okay. I did not know till uh, very recently that it was it, it hinged on my cooperation, but he didn't tell me that, and I didn't want any part of it. And Oprah had called a lot of people. I didn't want any part of any any kind of communication with the outside world about it. I thought I don't know anybody an explanation. Number one, number two, I don't even know if I'm safe. Right. And three, not, it's not going to help me in any way. So why do it? So what I did is I, I, I loved that place, but I sold it reluctantly. I sold it, changed my name and moved to the Midwest and went into teaching and did not speak of it for 30 years, almost 30 years. Wow. And ultimately what changed that was three things. It was I was at work one day and we had a coworker missing and people were talking about it, of course. And somebody came up to me and said, can you imagine having somebody in your house missing what that would be like? And I'm going, oh, no, I can't imagine that. And then I'm thinking, that's bull. Of course, I can imagine what that's like. I've been through it. And then we had a physician at work that week on giving a lecture on some topic. And as an aside, he made the comment that people who live with a secret for years and years play a price, pay a price for it physically. Ooh. And I'm thinking, oh, that's not good. And so I went back to my office to kind of think those two things over. And I happened to glance over at a bookshelf with my favorite books on it, all of which were first person accounts of people who'd been through tragedy and came out of it. Okay. All different kinds of situations, like a man or a woman, I should say a woman that was had her house invaded and her little daughter was taken hostage and dynamite was strapped to her five-year-old's back if the woman would not open the safe as a bank teller where she worked. And he said, if you don't do it by a certain time, she's going to blow and you won't even know where she is. Another one was the, the, about the 33 men who were trapped under, underground for, in Chile and the miners, you know, and their ordeal. So it got to me thinking, you know, if they can tell their story, I should probably tell mine and, and I got to come out of this shell. And because I was starting to feel like I was leading a double life, you know, like there was this whole other part of me people didn't know. So I reluctantly told a new friend of mine, and she was like a little taken aback and encouraged me to write a book. And I'm like, maybe I'll write a novel. And she said, no, why write a novel? The truth is more interesting. And exactly. And so I did ultimately reconnect with some of the detectives on the case, and they were so nice to me. They took me around Detroit and, you know, guns blazing, basically, into places I would not have gone by myself. And we said, oh, this is the hotel where they met. And this is the diner where they had lunch. And, and it, it was still a god-awful ghetto right. of a place. 
So it took me six years, but I wrote the book. I read 11 pounds of court testimony. I interviewed people. I looked at old photographs. I interviewed his old high school friends who I'd never met because he was a lot older than me. And like I said, it took me six years and I finally got it out last year. And then a friend, a relative of mine who owns a crime scene cleanup business said to me, you ought to have a podcast on the topic of homicide. And I'm like, I don't know anything about podcasts or microphones or the hardware. She says, oh, you'll figure it out. So I, she put the bug in my ear and I found out surprisingly how helpful other podcasters are. They bend over. It's like a little community, you know, and they're, it's not competitive. It's like, oh, you just do this and that. And if you need help, let me know. And, and they were very, very helpful to me, particularly Javier on the Pretender podcast was very helpful to me. So I launched the podcast. It was called The Domino Effect of Murder to speak to the issue of what is the long-term impact of homicide on either family members or witnesses, coworkers, and first responders. And most of the episodes deal with first-person accounts of a relative who was impacted because of the homicide of their loved one. Occasionally, I have experts on like a homicide detective or an attorney or a grief therapist to talk about it from a different angle. And that's now in its second season. It's heard in 10 countries. And what I'm trying to do is to bring some reality into the, quote, true crime genre that we so often hear about on podcasts, in movies and in academic research as well. There's not a lot written about on homicide survivors and I, I don't think that's just disinterest on the part of people. I think it's also because homicide survivors hide for a long time. So if there's a big black hole there in terms of what we need to know. And I discovered that by, I always do prep work in preparation for each interview. And here's an example. I was doing recently an episode on filicide, which is the murder of a child by a mother. And the interviewee was, a, was four years old when she discovered the homicide of her 12-year-old brother at the hands of her mother. So I was trying to research the impact of filicide on a surviving child. I could find nothing on it, zero. There's nothing out there that I could find. And I'm pretty good at digging stuff up, right? I never even heard it before. Right. So what I'm saying is if you're, in the, if you're casting about for a research topic for a PhD, please consider this as a topic because it needs a lot of work. I'm speechless. So ultimately, I'm assuming John Carl Fry and Don Spence were found guilty. They were and, both found guilty. And hopefully they're spending a long ass time in jail. Uh, neither of them are in, incarcerated. John Carl Fry died five years in from oh. hep C from his long years of IV drug use. She was given a slap on the wrist. She was out before I could sell my house. She only served a matter of several months and she was out. No, so she, so they're they're not around anymore. <laughs> I mean, she's around, you know, in reality, but she didn't pay much in terms of a price. Right. So, so as you move forward, how therapeutic was it telling your story? Because you know that's that's kind of the big thing. Go tell your story. Go tell your story. But was it a value to you? Not that way. No. And the reason was because I waited 30 years to tell my story. And I thought I need to get my ducks in a row, my act together before I set pen to paper. My allegiance to my readers isn't to use them for therapy. My allegiance to my readers is to tell this story as honestly and as detailed as I can. My purpose in writing the book was to speak for other homicide survivors, to draw upon what I did know at the time in terms of issues related to homicide survivors like PTSD, for example. And so 
prior to that, I worked really hard to get my act together. Oddly, one of the things that helped me the most, which most people, and that wasn't my intention, but it just turned out that way, is I was teaching a graduate course in cross-cultural psychotherapy, and it occurred to me if I was to be effective as an instructor, I better travel more and really get to know these places I'm going to be teaching about. So I started going to some really remote places in the world where they didn't have running water. They didn't have paved roads where women were married off at age 12 to a man who has six other wives, that kind of situation, remote areas of India and so on. And when I came home and digested some of the, and I've been to five continents now it really struck me how fortunate I am. And that, and that for me was, and it wasn't my intention, like I said, but I came away with such gratitude. I mean, I had Detective Landeros. I had legal rights. I did have a roof over my head. It, homelessness didn't happen. I had my physical health. I had my friends who never lost faith in me. I had my education. I had a job. I had plenty to be grateful for. And it put it in such a perspective that I thought, you know, this isn't the worst thing possible. I have so many things going for me that I don't have time to feel sorry for myself. My role now, what I see in front of me is to, to try to help others in my shoes because no one else is doing it that, I, that I've connected with. I'm not saying they were, they were out there, but I didn't know of anybody who was. And I was trying to reach them because I know what it's like to be lost. And in my situation, I had no relatives within 900 miles when all of this happened. And, you know, normally when something bad happens, you go to your husband, but he was the one who was killed. I had no children at that time. Uh, I do now, but I didn't then. And so I was on my own, but I thought, I am not going to let them get any more from me. You know, let them come for it. They're not going to get another thing out of me. And it's, I haven't done anything wrong. I have nothing to explain. And I'm just going to press on and use what I've what's happened to me for good to to make lemonade out of lemons. That was what I wanted to do. And the best revenge is to being successful, you know. Amen. Yeah. So what's what's the so that sounds like that was your biggest learning experience. Yeah. You don't know what you're capable of until you're pressed to do it. You know, it's like you've heard stories of women who's maybe saw their teenage son underneath a car fixing it and the car falls on him and the woman like, oh my God. And she runs out there and lifts the car off of her teenage son so he can crawl out from under it. Something which 10 minutes earlier, she could not have done for any reason. But when, when trauma hits, that's when you can find out your depth of your strength and what you're made out of. And I don't recommend it. I don't, I don't yeah. go seek trauma to find that out. But I think I, I really believe that it can bring out the best in people. I truly believe that. I mean, look at some of these horrific events we've seen, like at the Boston Marathon, people jumping in to help people who 10 minutes earlier wouldn't have spoken to somebody else because they're of a different race or ethnic or religious background. But when the bombs went off, they jumped in and helped. And it, people, it bring, can bring people together. It right. can. And this was one of those situations. Un unbelievable. I just, I'm like at a loss for, I mean, talk about being self-full. You, you filled your cup first by yep. setting your boundaries, by saying, I am not going to give any more to anyone else. Nope. I'm going to take care of me. Yep. So how do you continue to be self-full and, and continue to set boundaries as your story 
gets told over and over again. I'm very careful about talking about where I live, but where my phone number is. Right. I um, I try to keep myself busy physically still. I used to do triathlons since I've been diagnosed with cancer. I can't do those any longer, but I'm respectful. I don't use my new married name. I use my old married name, Canty, publicly because I don't think the public has a right to know all the details about where I live and what my name is. Uh, that's not relevant. What's relevant is is the information that I can provide and the resources that I can provide. And I, I and maybe that's overstating and maybe they wouldn't even care that much. I don't really know. But I, I firmly believe in the importance of boundaries because the people that need them the most are the ones that will hurt you for them. Right. Well, and, you know, you and I were talking before we started, you know, the podcast you know, the homicide rate in the United States is skyrocketed. It is. And, and I would think the value that you are bringing to those individuals is priceless. I hope so. It's been really difficult getting, and I don't have to explain this to you, you do podcasts. It's, it's difficult getting out there and having people recognize you there. Yeah, but because it's not, it's not glamorous what I'm talking about. It, and a lot of people want a happy ending. And frankly, not everybody has a happy ending to their stories. I interviewed a woman in Israel who was hiking in the Mata Forest with her hiking partner. And she was attacked by, they were attacked by two terrorists from Palestine. She saw her friend hacked to death and she almost died. She had to drag herself up a hill for, took her an hour to get to the parking lot to be discovered. And she, it's amazing. She survived physically and she is still very, and this happened years ago. She still is very depressed from it. Very politically upset by what's happened. And it's a long story, but she doesn't have a happy ending and not everybody does. And I think people want that, but it isn't always the case. Another one case in point is a family I interviewed his two-year-old niece was murdered by the boyfriend of the mother who knew boyfriend of the mother. He was like six, six. And I'm like, well, isn't he a big guy can murder a little two-year-old? And uh, the guy served his 10 years. He got out and he moved nearby them and he walks and they see him in the store and there's nothing they can do about it. And they, he just like rubs it in. There's no happy ending for that family. They know that a two-year-old will never come back and there's no more they can do legally. He served his time. There are other stories that do have happy endings, but I think that works against us sometimes in terms of getting our story out there. So if there was, you know, one thing that people who are, are survivors are of experiencing a violent death, a violent murder, um, what's the one thing you would want people to know that they can get from you? What they can get, what they should expect and demand from me is a sense of connection. There's no substitute for that. It is so unhealthy to do what I did in the first few weeks, which is just to hole up in a corner and pull the covers over your head. But to connection and realizing you are not alone, that there are other people. Granted, your situation is unique. Every homicide is unique. I, I won't dispute that. But the aftermath is not. It's fairly predictable how the aftermath goes in terms of your physical functioning, the stigma that you get the legal, financial, social, spiritual, emotional repercussions are fairly predictable. And it can be very gratifying to know, no, it's not you. You're not crazy. The nightmares are predictable. Or no, it's not you that you're so angry. That's part and parcel. That's about where you should be right now. Right. I, I think they feel like they've righted the ship a little bit. And, and uh, like it or not, you may serve as a guide for them in the next 
step down the road because the messages they do get from people can be very hurtful. People who are not intending to hurt them, but do hurt them by saying things like, well, it's been a year, you should be over by now. Or I had one of my uh, podcast guests, brother was in a carjacking and was killed and dumped in the desert. And she had somebody call her that she knew from high school just to ask how many bullets were in his body. I mean, I've had remarks to me. I mean, when my husband was killed by, he was beaten to death with a baseball bat. And I had a guy say, ask, say to me one time, I heard it was a home run. <gasps> like, that is not funny. It, under, in what world is that funny? You know, it, it, they, it, people, I think they treat it. I think two things happen. I think one is that we're so accustomed to crime being entertainment that it loses its reality because most people have watched murder scenes and so on. The second thing I think that happens is when your story is out in the news a lot, people come familiar with your story and it's like it's their story that they feel entitled to know more. It's not your private misery anymore. It's theirs. And they feel entitled to cross boundaries. So an important lesson to teach them is boundaries. And and one of the strong recommendations I always make to somebody who's had this recently happen to them is get a family spokesperson. You do not have to speak to the media. I would recommend you do not speak to the media. You do not have to answer the door or the phone or give any information out that you don't choose to. That is your legal right. People don't know that. And, and, you know, one of the things that happens when we're under stress in a very traumatic situation is that our, the blood circulation to the speech centers of our brain is reduced. Therefore, oxygen to our speech centers is reduced. So we tend to babble and, and get tongue tied and we can't connect our thoughts. And do we want to be remembered that way in the media forever by replaying that little soundbite over and over? No. And, and you don't have to do that. So that's one of the things I talk about, too. I wrote an essay. I, I have a private group on Facebook called Homicide Survivors and Thrivers. And I wrote an essay on there. It was called This Is Your Brain on Homicide. And I talk about what happens inside at the molecular level so that people understand, no, you're not crazy because you can't speak after the trauma hits or after you come out of the morgue or after you're at the trial and you see the evidence photos that are so graphic, there's biologic reasons for that. And you're not crazy. It's just your brain on homicide. I want them to understand that many of their reactions are just normal and it's not a sign of mental illness or being crazy or being weak or any of the other labels that they can place on themselves. Wow. I mean, I I am... I'm going to make sure that people know you are out there. Thank you. You know, like I said, we are, you know, despite your political beliefs, despite how you feel about gun control or any of that, murders happen in other ways. And lives aren't just taken by guns, but we have to figure out why, why we are so consumed with hurting others. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and then once, once the hurt is over, or the pain of, of, you know, someone being murdered, how, how, how do the people left behind survive? And, and that's you, a big question mark that most people don't yeah. ask. It's not right. shown in movies. It's not right. comes up in research. You don't hear it on podcasts. And that to me is the real story. The, the story begins with the trial, which right. is rare, by the way, 95% of all homicides are resolved through plea bargains. Okay. Oh, so it's rare to get a trial. 
And for those 5% that do get a trial, it's hard because you're watching and sitting through graphic testimony. You don't have to, you can leave, you know, nobody's making you, but many people feel like it's their bearing witness for the deceased to sit there and make themselves watch what they have to watch. And it's awful, but that's part of it. You know, learning about prosecutorial misconduct. I was shocked. I mean, the the layers just keep happening in my life. I was recently uh, made aware of prosecutorial immunity. I, d- I wasn't familiar with that. That's a whole nother topic. It shows that the finesse that the things that DAs can do to get a verdict. And sometimes it means getting the wrong person behind bars knowingly, but just to get a check mark next to their name as a as a conviction it's awful and i didn't know any of that and it's it's nationwide they can they can uh, present illegally obtained evidence they can exclude exculpatory evidence they can ask for witnesses that would otherwise be disqualified and there's nothing you can do about it cuz they're the da well now in my case it worked in my favor i did get a right. conviction but i wouldn't have wanted that had the person been falsely accused Right. Well, it's kind of like you lived your own episode of Law and Order. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like, yeah. I mean, you kind of, you know, from the whole backstory is, you know, unfortunately, you know, what ultimately caused the demise of your husband, you know, to solving it. I mean, yeah. So so now that you're you're on the other side, I guess, do you ever get to the other side? No, come not completely. You think you have. I thought I had. But here's an example about uh, two years ago, I uh, I asked this, I hired this landscaper to trim the bushes on the side of my property. On the other side of those bushes was a little jogging trail and then my neighbor's house. So it was, the jogging trail was sandwiched in between my neighbor's house and my house. And I, I hired her to trim the bushes because they were getting to the point where it was hard to, to get by them. I came home from work and they they were gone. All I had was trunks of trees. And I was not only did it look ugly, but more importantly, I couldn't sleep because one of the things that happens after trauma is you want to have control. That's part of PTSD. You want to have control of your boundaries. That is part and parcel to the aftermath of trauma as to who's in your house, who knocks on your door, who parks in your driveway. That never leaves you ever. And my husband now, I, I remarried. I said, we have to have a fence in there. I mean, like today. And he goes, well, I don't know that we can do it today. What's the big deal with the fence? And I said, I'll talk about that later. Let's just get on the, we need to get a fence. I would not let up on it. And it was irrational. I didn't, it wasn't going to protect me from anything except people looking at a couple windows on that side of the house. But it's my, the intensity of my reaction even surprised me. It was like, I just could not sleep till that fence was put in. And you're talking years and years and years later. So, so it doesn't go away completely, but that doesn't mean that you can't grow from the trauma. It doesn't mean you can't grow around it. You can't function. You, your, your world stops. No, but it's, it's a life-changing event. That's what PTSD is. Right. Well, and look, look what you're doing. I mean, you are turning your story into a podcast, into a book, into a group that can help others. So, and and that's why I had to pull back and say, do you ever get to the other side? Cause you're right. You you, you don't, there's always going to be some underlying thought, Mm -hmm. you know, when something like that happens, when your fence disappears or or your bushes or, you know, a door gets left open or whatever it may or may not be. Right. Um, 
Wow. You're amazing. Oh, (laughs) absolutely amazing. So I guess stubborn. (laughs) Well, damn it. We need that then. Um, So I get, you know, so, so, you know, being where you are today, are there three books that got you through? Are there three things? Yes, they would be. One was actually totally unrelated. I happened to be on vacation with my friend in Florida. She asked me to meet her down there and she wanted to go do something. So I walked down to the books, the used bookstore and I happened to pull this book and it turned out to be absolutely my favorite book of all time. It's called Life is So Good. It is a fabulous story. It is written by a man, a, a very elderly black man who was the son of a sharecropper in the deep south, never went to school. And it's about his life and what happened and his wife's dying and the kind of jobs he had and what he saw in the South and how he was treated being black. And, and he, he had this, this warmth and this innate sense of wisdom about him that I just loved. And here's just one example. (laughs) I just love this passage. He's sitting at home one day. And at this point in time, he's 95. There's a knock on the door. It's the local guy. It's from the high school or college talking about the GED program. He knocks on the door and he said, you know, I represent the GED program. Would your grandsons have any interest in that? And he goes, well, what is a GED program? And he told him and he goes, well, I ain't never been to school, but I suppose I want to get a GED. And he goes, well, um, I guess there's no rules against that, but you'd have to learn the alphabet and numbers. And he goes, okay, when do I start? Sign me up. So they signed him up. And the first day he goes into class in his three buttons, is his three piece button up suit, you know, all like he's dressed for church on Sunday. He walks in the room and he sees a bunch of kids sitting on the tables with their pants half down their butts with chains and tattoos. And they think he's the teacher, right? So they all get off and sit down and, and he sits down with them and they're like, well, who's this guy? You know? And then the teacher walks in and he goes, who are you? And he gives him his name and he goes, he says, I ain't never been to school in my life and I'm 95. I don't have a lot of time. I need to know all the letters. I need them now. How many letters you got? I need to learn. And he explained the alphabet and what he need to learn. He goes, okay. Well, three years later, he wrote his book. I know he's an amazing guy. There was another passage in there where he finds out about the Great Depression. And he says to this reporter, you mean to tell me people were jumping out of windows because they lost money that wasn't real money. It's this thing called stocks. And they were poor. And he goes, that's right. And he goes, well, I've been poor all my life. I ain't never jumped out of a window. (laughs) There's some reality for you. There's one book. Another book was what to uh, what to do when the police leave, which talks about the blueprint of it's a great book. It talks about the nuts and bolts of you've just been given the, the death notification. Now what kind of a thing? And another one would just be a, it was a psychology textbook and it was called the intensive psychotherapy. And it gave me hope that women can make a name for themselves in the, in the field of psychology. Because when I went through, I was discouraged from going to college, you know, in the sixties and let alone graduate school. And by the time I got to the doctorate level and my husband too, they were like, you don't need to do that. You know, women, you know, it's, it's a men's world. And you know, you're taking up a man's role. And I'm like, what? I, I was so faced with that. You know, it was nice to have some role models out there and know that I could proceed. And I w- I'm like, I'm not taking up anybody. I'm taking my place. You know, I don't right. see it that way. Move over. Here I am. Yeah, that's right. Right. 
Wow. Well, I, those are awesome. I, I got to go find Life is So Good book. I got to read that. It's a great book. Dawson, I think was his last name. Okay. There's a picture of him on the front with this tattered old hat. But I, it's, it's a, one of these, it's a quick read. It's a great summer book. I mean, you could get through it in a day. Easy. Oh my God. I, it's always stuck with me. And I, I love stories that are that genuine, you know, that, right. right. I, you know, and he wasn't, he wasn't formally educated, but he was a smart man. I've learned a lot outside of classes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and that was one of the things I wanted to bring to the fore with my book is that you'll find a few books written by people who have, quote, survived a homicide, but they're not trained in formally, educationally in terms of human behavior. And you find psychologists that will write books about surviving a homicide who've never been through it. To my knowledge, I'm the only one that's done both. So how did you, you know, not that we're going back, but I, I'm just so intrigued by your story. How did you come up with the title of Life Divided? It was my third choice. Um, the first two I threw away. I didn't think they were really good. I wanted it to work on two levels. I wanted okay. it to, on the most obvious level, speak to the before and after that when you're in a trauma, when a trauma happens, it divides your life into two. It's before the trauma and after the trauma. There's this cleaver of a moment that just happens and your life isn't the same. So your life is divided in a couple parts. But also it works on the more graphic level of what happened to my husband because his body was divided oh. in multiple places. And and the identifiable body parts were the ones that were buried, but his, unidentif his unidentifiable body parts like his torso, they were just thrown on the freeway on the way up to Petoskey and they were finding them and it was all over the news. So I kept getting these notifications. Well, we found his torso today. We found his, we found a right leg today. And I kept saying, you don't have to keep calling me. Just call me when it's over kind of a thing. Wow. It was pretty gruesome. I, I can only imagine the shock to one, to find out that what your husband's been murdered, but to the shock of the double life and the fact that not only are you devastated from a relationship, but you're financially devastated? You're, you know, everything physically that, worried. Yeah. And because everything that we as human beings think we need to survive a roof over our head, that connection, that companionship, you know, money in the bank account, all of a sudden it's all in jeopardy. It's it can, all, it's it can all be taken away from you oh. overnight. And without your control, back to your, right. you know, right. you want the control and I can only imagine, and you're young and. Yeah. I think I could summarize it this way. In marriage, there are things known, unknown, and known too late. <laughs> that is very well put. Yeah. Hindsight, I, you know. I, yeah. the hind, Yeah. That old adage, hindsight's 2020. Yeah. But I love those are, that's perfect. Oh my God. <laughs> Well, I, I want to thank you so much for your time. I, I just thank you for having me, Amy. I appreciate it. I mean, I think of people who commit suicide. We have hotlines for that. We have support, which is needed. But yet, do we have anything for people who have experienced homicide? And the most active group is in Arizona. It's called Homicide Inc. They're pretty well uh, organized. Okay. And we have Marcy's Law, which is not adopted in all states yet, which is starting to give homicide survivors rights, like notification of the, of the person escaping prison who murdered okay. your loved one. But it's not in all states, but it's the start. Because at this point in time, in most states, journalists have more rights than homicide survivors in the courtroom. That's not right. No. 
No, yeah, that's like when I asked you, how, how are the journalists getting all this information? Oh, there's an underground network. There's police informants. And, the, you know, and they were, they didn't spare any details. I mean, this was on television on the evening news and they showed blood spatter. They showed it was ugly. That's why I didn't want to see it. That's why I said to him, my dad, would you just please filter it for me? I don't need to see it. And, and I did finally years later, but I, I wasn't ready to see it. And, you know, every, I felt like the whole city knew everything than I did. And I, it, it would come up again. Like I remember, this is again, before we had cell phones, I turned in some phones in the house because I needed the money because used to pay a monthly rent on phones back in the day. Yep, I and I found that. a bag full. I didn't even know we had. So I thought, why am I paying on these every month? So I took them in and the w- woman at the top of her voice on the counter goes, oh, you're the widow. And then she points to, she nudges her coworker, like pointing her finger at my head. And I, I was so tired and angry at that point. I said, no, I'm not the prostitute. I'm the wife. Take the damn phones and give me my money. <laughs> I was tired of it. And, and sadly, there are people that do not get attention for homicides that need it, but they can't get anybody to pay any attention to them. And usually those are people of color. Their child goes missing. Nobody, nobody pays it attention. That's got to change too. Yeah. There's lots of things that need to change. Yeah, got to change. Well, Maybe you're podcast will help that. <laughs> but like I said, I, I, you know, I will make sure that people know about this. People need, that. thank you. I, my heart's breaking for, and, and I, I'm going to look at homicide differently. Thanks. Thanks to you. Yeah. Um, it is not, I don't find it entertainment by any stretch, but I, I surely never looked at it the way you've presented it. Um, I, I've almost become numb to it. Um, I and, think a lot of people have, I really do. And um, shame on us for for allowing that to happen. So I, I'm, no, I'm, no. When I know when I see merchandise out there that is it's they think it's funny. They'll have like a, there was a spoon on sale on Etsy that said uh, serial killer. Ha ha. And it was a spoon for cereal. Yeah, I've seen. And it. I'm like, you know, that's not funny. Right. Well, especially to someone who has lost a loved one in yeah. that very violent manner. Right. I, I am now going to change my point of view. Okay. And, and you know what? That's that's what that's what my goal is to highlight women who have achieved such incredible thriving in their life. And you you are thriving. Um trying. I'm doing my best. Trying to kick butt still at 70. You are. You're kicking butt, you're taking names and you're sending thank you notes, damn it. Yes. If there's one thing I can add, I know we have to leave, but if there's one thing I want to add, it's this. If you know somebody who has had, whose life has been impacted by homicide, the one thing that I would urge you to do is they don't need your support immediately. There's going to be a gush of support, but do not forget them four months down the road, six months down the road, a year from that day. Check in on them and don't add, don't say to them, what can, call me if you need me or what can I do to help you? Because that person can't put those thoughts together. Right. Instead, say to them, you know, I think I'll have your grass cut this year or I'll take your car in to have your tires rotated or I'm going to go grocery shopping next week for the two of us. You give them the suggestion of what you think they need and just don't lose track of them because people feel like people forget. And it's perfectly fine to bring up the deceased person's name in their presence because if you don't people think you don't care that you've forgotten wow that is great advice and on that note i'm gonna thank you again. okay thank you for having me i could i could send gratitude your way for all day because i'm just so impressed so i'm thankful for your show too thank you thank you for joining me today i don't know about you but i sure am grateful for the opportunity to listen and learn from such great women 
So if you enjoyed yourself as much as I did, please feel free to share Braveful podcast with your friends and colleagues, as well as please subscribe to Braveful on your favorite podcast apps. Have the best day ever. And until next time, be Braveful.